Nehemiah chapter 6, if you don't have a Bible or an app, um, we do have some in the back, not apps, but Bibles by the sound booth. You can go back and grab one. If you don't have a Bible at all, keep it. It's our gift to you. We want you to have it. We want you to read it. We want you to be transformed by it. So, chapter 6, Nehemiah. This is the 12th part of our uh, Gospel According to Ezra Nehemiah series. And throughout this study, we have seen the mighty hand of God at work as he has brought the people, uh, the Israelite people, um, from Babylonian captivity back home to Jerusalem, their homeland. And God has used many different people for his purposes, Persian rulers, he's used Ezra, he's used uh, a a lot of people. Uh, The temple got reconstructed first and foremost, demonstrating uh, the that worship is of first importance. They come to the city. They don't rebuild the walls first. They rebuild the temple. They establish the altar. They worship their God. And then 13 years later, after we, from the end of the book of Ezra, 13 years, now we're in Nehemiah, Nehemiah, and we meet the character, the person, Nehemiah. He was a cupbearer to the king. And he receives word that back home in Jerusalem, the walls around the city are busted down. Uh, the people have no protection. They look foolish. Uh, and he goes and he goes to the king. And King Artaxerxes gives him permission, commissions him to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And so from chapter 3 of the book of Nehemiah, we see construction start to happen. And it's great. We, uh, we see people coming together. Uh, from all different walks of life. We have priests, goldsmiths, perfumers. Uh, Nehemiah is rallying the people together like a good leader and getting them to, to help as one unit to, to put these walls back together, really showing the community. But it wasn't all building bliss. Uh, there was opposition that we saw come in in chapter 4 where Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem they're very much against this wall going up. So they, they use different weapons against the people. They, use, uh, they, use, they mocked them. They intimidated them. They used their fatigue against them. They instilled fear into them. But Nehemiah, through the help of God, was able to fend off the opposition and stay on course. And then last week we saw a different kind of Uh, not necessarily opposition, but a different roadblock as the Israelites within their own people were taking advantage of one another in the midst of famine and and hardship. The rich were exploiting the poor, and they were making fellow brothers and sisters uh, uh, indebted slaves in a time of need rather than rallying together to support one another. So Nehemiah steps in. Once again, he's able to tackle that issue and he works through it. He calls the people who need to be called out to their, he calls them out in their sin, and he provides for the people that need provision, and he does it from his own, his own portions. And he says he does it because he fears God, not, not, in a, not in a fearful like, I mean, he's afraid of him, but he reveres him. He's in awe of God. He's serving God, and that's why he does it. And that brings us to where we're at today, here in chapter 6. The opposition strikes again. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem are back on the scene and ready to cause more trouble. So as we look through this text, we're going to read through it um, as I go through it. Uh, 
probably the entire thing will get read this morning. So we're just going to go ahead and move right into how the different points. If you want to write these down, we're going to look at the distraction covering verses 1 through 4. We're going to look at the distortion, looking at 5, five to 9. The deception, 10 to 14. And then done, 15 to 19. And not just because I'll be done, but we see some things get done. And what we will be seeing is that when the opposition comes, this is the big idea, when the opposition comes to steal us away from the things of God, we must remain grounded on the mission we've been called to. And that's what we're going to see happen throughout this passage. And before I actually get into the text of Nehemiah, I just want to remind us of of what Paul says in Ephesians 6.10, that as we're dealing with opposition, we want to be reminded of not only the physical opposition that comes from people, but the spiritual battle that we are in daily. Paul writes, Ephesians 6, 10 to 12, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And we kind of, we went over that when we went over chapter 4, but it's good to be reminded that, you know, the weapons that are used by the opposition in this text are, are not just unique to this text. Uh, it's the same things that we deal with day in and day out spiritually uh, that, that Satan and his minions want to use against us. And uh, we need to be prepared uh, to deal with that. So we want to keep that in mind as we're going through this text. All right, so let's go to... Nehemiah chapter 6. Finally, I've said the title, the verse and reference enough. Let's actually look at it. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Now when Samballot and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Samballot and Geshem said to me, or sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together at Hakafurim, in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way and I answered them in the same manner. When we first saw Sam Ballot, Tobiah, and Geshem come on the scene, uh, probably as early as, as chapter 3, but also chapter 4 when they really start stirring up trouble, uh, they were targeting the Israelite people as a whole. They were going after the, the whole body. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1 said that they jeered at who? The Jews. And they plotted against all of Jerusalem. That's chapter 4, verse 8. Their efforts were focused on the overall people. And their efforts were on using the people against themselves in order to thwart the building of this wall. So now since that has failed, they, they, re, they, they regroup and they go in for a different attack and they go elsewhere. They go to Nehemiah personally. They're, they're looking to get to the leader. They knew he was in charge. They knew if this, the gates, the doors aren't up on the gates yet. Everything else is done. The doors aren't up. We need to see this thing stop. So we got to go to Nehemiah himself. And they very well couldn't just come into Jerusalem and, and assassinate him directly. Um, so Sambal and Geshem try a more diplomatic approach, and they send these 
letters. They wanted to meet. Now let's look exactly what this, you know, what these guys wanted to do as far as meeting. So here's our lovely area. We got Jerusalem. There it is. And they want to him for Nehemiah to go from Jerusalem all the way to the plain of Ono. Okay, so they want to meet out there. They're probably coming from up in the Samaria area. So it, it does act as neutral ground, but they want him to take, it's a two-day journey to the plain and probably a two-day journey back. So that's four days. Um, that's a lot of time. And they want to take him up there to meet. Like, these guys were causing so much trouble. So Nehemiah's going to be like, all right, well, I guess I'll travel a couple days and come see you. Like, no, he sees right through it. He wasn't going to bite, and for two reasons. One, he knew that these guys were gamers. He wasn't going to go because he knew that these guys were, uh, were gamers, and they most likely desired to do him harm. That's a no-brainer. And also, he knew that their intentions were to distract him from the work. He realizes this. Look at his, look at his response here. He says, But they intended to do me harm, and I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? He replies truthfully and succinctly. Uh, he's like, I'm, I'm really busy down here. I'm sorry, I can't come to you guys. I'm doing a great work. Now it sounds like Nehemiah kind of like is having like a little bit of an ego trip. Like I've got great things to be doing down here. I'm the man. Uh, but it's not the case. And I think we probably know that. He's doing a great work because the work that he's doing is the work of God, the work that God has called him to do. And that is a great work, what God calls us to do. He's doing this work, and he's like, you guys want to distract me? You want to take me two days away, both ways? I just, it's not going to work. Thanks, but no thanks. I appreciate you guys wanting to meet, but you know what? No. A good leadership quality is being able to be both perceptive, but yet still remain diplomatic. Like he saw through the pleasantries of the letter. He saw through the corrupt motive behind it, yet he, he doesn't respond saying, you guys are a bunch of morons. I'm not coming to go see you. What are you, out of your mind? No, he, he responds succinctly, politely, uh, non-confrontationally. His goal wasn't to make them even matter, but his goal was to just avoid the distraction that they were causing. Avoiding distraction is uh, really, really relevant, I think. How many of us probably, um, you don't need to put your hands up, are easily distracted? Yeah, I am. How many of us become easily distracted when it comes to, you know, the gospel and loving people and uh, getting to know others and just getting distracted from the work that God has called all of us to do and living on mission, going and making disciples? We get distracted from that all the time. Do we allow distractions to get in the way? I think, I know I, I can just speak for myself. I know I do all too often. It happens. How many of us allow distractions to get in the way, not of just uh, our interactions with people and sharing the gospel, but doing things that really help to grow our relationship with God? Doing, doing things like reading and praying you know, I just didn't have time to pray this week or read my Bible this week or this morning or even this month. Well, why? Well, I had this going on. My kids had that going on. 
Uh, there's a show on, which I don't have a DVR, so I've got to watch it then. It's got to be, you can't expect me to miss the show. And again, I'm probably speaking more of myself. Um, but the list goes on. And we just got to be honest, right? I mean, we get distracted. We let stuff distract us. And it's not necessarily bad things, right, that distract. Sometimes it's, a, it's, it's very it's good things. Uh, but when, when a distraction, and again, just like, you know, it's an idol. When something, a good thing becomes the ultimate thing, that's an idol. That's sinful. Um, when they push God to the side, they are sinful. And just like the many distracting things in our lives, right? Uh, Nehemiah, for Nehemiah, this wasn't just a one and done thing. It's not like, it's not like we're like, whew, I fended off that distraction. Now I'm going to be clear sailing from here on out. No, we're like the dog in the movie Up who sees a squirrel. And we're focused and we're like, squirrel. You know, yeah, you guys, you know what I'm talking about. Saddest, saddest beginning of a movie ever. But that's a different note. These guys keep coming at Nehemiah. Look what it says. It says, and they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. Nehemiah has to continue fending off these distractions. He's got to continue getting these guys off his case. They wouldn't relent because they knew that the wall being built meant that Israel wasn't going to be, uh, Jerusalem wasn't going to be the laughing stock anymore. They weren't going to be uh, susceptible to penetration uh, by the enemy. They weren't going to be a joke. And they didn't want to see that happen. And distractions they're, they're a lot like mosquitoes, right? It's not usually just one that bothers you. It's like they keep coming, they keep coming. You, so when you go outside in the summer, you know you've got to bring the swatter, you've got to have the torches and the candles and the spray and everything else ready to defend them off continually. It's the same thing with distractions. And once fended off, another one comes, then another one comes, and we need to stand firm, focused on the task at hand, the, the, the things of God, the mission of God, our relationship with God, we need to stick to that. And God blessed Nehemiah with the ability to stay focused, that's for sure. Gave him the ability to, to see that the main thing is kept the main thing, the kingdom of God. So I just want to give, maybe these are things you've already thought about, but just the practical ways to fend off uh, distraction. These, these apply over a multitude of things, both to our, our Christian walk and just living life and then, you know, practical, like, time management, I guess. Uh, the first thing is to know to the best of your ability the things that distract you. If we know what they are, at least then we can figure out a way to stop them. Nehemiah, he knew it was distracting him. These annoying guys trying to stop the wall. So know, to the best ability, the things that snag your attention, the things that distract you. Two, prioritize. What's most important? What's the most important thing I've got to do today? I need to make time for God. I need to pray. I need that. What can wait? Probably that Seinfeld rerun. Again, speaking to myself here. We need to constantly prioritize. From there, we then can make a plan. So that's the third thing, plan, right? Having a plan helps big time. If you don't have a plan, you're just going every which way, trying to navigate your way through, and you'll probably be susceptible to more distractions in life than you really want to be. 
But when you have a plan, like Nehemiah had a plan. He knew what the goal was. He knew he had to get the wall done. His top priority was the wall. He had a plan to get that done. So when distractions came, he was able to go, you know what? These guys trying to draw me away, this is not a part of the plan. Sorry, guys. You just don't make the cut. It's not a part of the plan. Last week, it's like sometimes things happen where you have to get through them. Otherwise, the, the plan's shot too. Last week, we saw him have to deal with the, the inner turmoil within the, the Israelite people. Well, he had to deal with that because if they are at odds with each other, this wall is not getting done. So he dealt with that. He got back on course. We need to know what distracts us, prioritize the important things, and have a plan. The very nature of my job here at King's Chapel is to be a multi-hat wearer, right? In order to get anything done, I need to prioritize. What's most important? Sometimes more important trumps more enjoyable. I would just love to sit in here and play music all day and get paid for it. That would be fantastic. Um, But I wouldn't be getting done the important things I actually need to get done. And that happens well. Um, I mean, could, could I decide every day that I'm just going to practice songs? Yeah, I could. But in saying yes to that, uh, I'm probably not getting done something I need to. One of the, a uh, good friend of mine and a mentor, a guy named Pastor Brian Green from uh, First Baptist Westerlo, he told me one time when I was doing an internship that, he said, saying yes to something means you're saying no to something else. Saying yes to something means you're saying no to something else. When he said that to me, it was like a, a new thought in my head because I was always like, you know, I need, to be, I need to be available, I need to be open, I need to be willing to do all kinds of things. You know, sometimes when you say yes to all the things, you're saying no to some other things that are important. Like sometimes, you know, you say yes to things that at church or serving and, and doing all different kinds of really good things, but then you end up saying no to your family. That's not good either. Or then sometimes you end up saying yes to social things and family things so much that you end up saying no to your church family. And that's not good either. There needs to be a balance. There needs to be a pri- uh, we need to prioritize. What are those priorities? Nehemiah didn't allow the opposition to distract him from what was of first importance to him to get the, the wall built to do the great work that God had put him in Jerusalem to do. And so as a result of that, a fifth letter gets sent. And now we'll look at the distortion. Five, verses five to nine. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written... It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel, and that is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear these reports. So now, come and let us take counsel together. And then I sent to him, saying, No such things you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. 
When the tactic of distraction wasn't enough for these guys, they, they changed from cordial diplomatic letters to an open letter, uh, essentially uh, a, a threat. And, and just, you know, this isn't just a, a case of like the letter got opened and the mailman read like a love letter or something. Like this was an open letter that was being carried from one area. You saw on the map like their way up here, Jerusalem's down here. This letter's making its way down. Uh, and with an open letter like that, that meant anyone could see the contents of it. So as it traveled through from where Sambalat was down to Jerusalem, people who wanted to, to see it could see it. People were probably reading it aloud, so people were hearing it. So this letter, which is full of false accusations, is making its way down to Jerusalem. And it's not completely lies. There's just the slightest layer of truth in it. And that's distorting the truth and using it against him. This open letter reminds me of those videos, the commercials you see during election time that just drive you crazy. Every single commercial is just one politician bashing another politician, and sometimes it just sounds ridiculous. I mean, that's, that's what this is. This is ye old version of political bashing commercials. Like, Nehemiah came into your town to build a wall. What he didn't tell you is that he actually wants to be your king. And lead you into rebellion. Don't say yes to Nehemiah's selfish wall project. (laughs) Supported by the Sambalat Tobiah Geshem Association. (laughs) It's just ridiculous. (laughs) But an open letter like this would spark outrage through the nations. It would. And the hope would be that it would take Nehemiah all the way back to King Artaxerxes so that he would put the kibosh on the whole thing. One of the most effective lies are the ones that have those small layers of truth in them. Like the Jewish people, yes, they are rebuilding a wall. That part's true. And the prophets are proclaiming that there is a king, uh, a coming king for Judah. There's a promise of a king who would rule and reign forever on their throne. But that king wasn't going to be Nehemiah. We know who that king is. That king is King Jesus. He's ruling and reigning on his throne. And not only do we know that that king isn't Nehemiah, but Nehemiah knows that the king's not going to be himself. He knew his motives. He knew he came to build the wall because he didn't want to see his people be ridiculed anymore. He didn't want to see them vulnerable to attack certainly wasn't for purposes of rebellion. The truth had been distorted. This distortion is just another form of distraction. Another attempt to pull Nehemiah from the work that he had been called there to do. An open letter like this has just so much potential for Nehemiah to have to drop everything, to go around and just put out fire after fire after fire after fire. And, and go and to defend himself personally to all these places. Uh, but he doesn't, he doesn't waste his time doing that. He, he does, I mean, really the best thing to do is he just says, he sent to them saying, no such things as you say have been done for you are inventing them out of your mind. Nehemiah is able to just brush off these allegations. He's like, this is crazy. You're out of your mind. You're just making stuff up. And he's so secure 
that he's just able to do that because he knows his motive and he, he knows the people really do know his motive. So he was confident in that. He was confident that God had him there for a reason and that God would continue to work in this wall building process. So in that he's secure and he can just say, you know what? No, that's a lie. You made it up. You're, you guys are just out of your minds. I'm still not going to come see you. He knew the truth, so he didn't let the distorted truth get in his way. Satan tries to distort truth all the time. We need to be secure in our identity in Christ. When Satan tries to, to tell us that we're, we're worthless because, because of, of sin and the things we do, we need to remember that, you know what? No, I am created in the image of and likeness of God. And therefore, I do have value, dignity, and worth. When we sin, Satan tries to tell us that God hates us. He could never love you. That's the lie he speaks. That's the lie that some of us feel. But know that in Christ, we know that God does love us. And because of that love, he died for us so that we could be free from those very sins that Satan is using against us. We can confess, we can repent, and First John tells us that God is faithful and just to forgive us for those sins. Don't allow the schemes and the lies of the devil, the distorted truth, to overshadow the beautiful, beautiful truth of the gospel. One of the best purchases I've uh, made is a book called uh, New Morning Mercies, a daily gospel devotional. It's by a guy named Paul Tripp. And it's just day in and day out, helps to reinforce the need for the gospel, reinforce our identity in Christ. It's, I recommend it. Uh, if you want to get that name again, uh, see me after. I'll hook you up with the name, not the book. But um, let's keep moving forward. We see Nehemiah's great perception again. They, they send out the letter. He says no. And then he, he recognizes for all they wanted to do or all, all wanted to frighten us thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. One of the most encouraging things about Nehemiah is he recognizes that he's not perfect in and of himself. He's not going to do these. He's not going to get through this in and of himself. He recognizes a need for prayer. He's, he, he, you just see it. He's like, God, these guys are trying to mess with us. They're trying to bring me down. They're trying to bring us down. They want us to drop from the work. Give me the strength. Strengthen my hands. Strengthen me to lead well. Give me the strength to push on. Help me to stay grounded and focused on the task at hand, on the mission you've put me to. Because these guys are really trying my patience. I mean, he really, he says, now, oh God, strengthen my hands. But that's, I mean, that's what I see in that prayer. That's what we can deem from that prayer. He, he is being tried and tested. And he's like, God, give me the strength. Give me the strength. We're so close. Give me the strength. We'll never push through the trials on our own. We need the help of our Heavenly Father. We need the help of other brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why community is such a big thing here. Because the opposition doesn't seem to relent. 
just keeps coming. The distractions, the distortion. Now we see deception. Look at me at verses 10 to 14. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Metabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I should go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced that the prophecy against me. He had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Samballot had hired him for the purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. The opposition's next strike is one of deception. (laughs) Nehemiah went to see this guy, Shemaiah, a man evidently regarded as a prophet of God. We don't know why he was confined to his house, he, he could have had some health reasons. Uh, he could have just acted as though he was confined to his house to build up this story that someone was coming to kill Nehemiah and there was this secrecy that needed to happen. Uh, but he, he is someone of, had to be some kind of importance because Nehemiah takes the time to actually go down to his house when requested. He goes down there and he's given this, this prophecy, this word, and this wouldn't have been presented in like, kind of like a, a Nehemiah, just, just a heads up, friend to friend, this is happening. This would have been like probably some kind of production of some kind. A, he was presenting a prophetic word from God. That's how, that's how it would have been presented. And that's where there is a bit of an issue because not, not only is he, not, he's lying to him, but he's lying as though God is lying to him. That's, that's a problem. He's a prophet. So he tells Nehemiah that he's in danger, and therefore he should go hide out in the house of God within the temple. The house of God within the temple is a place that we actually would know as the Holy of Holies. That's a bold place to hide out. You don't just like say, well, let's go hide out in the Holy of Holies. Oh, yeah! Like, you don't do that. Even if you're scared out of your mind, you're not going to go in there because the only person that was allowed in there was the high priest. And that wasn't even every day. It was during the Day of Atonement, during uh, that, that feast, that time. So needless to say, there, there is an issue with this picture. A man regarded as a prophet of God is telling Nehemiah to go save his life by fleeing to a place where he's most likely going to lose it. And Nehemiah senses the same thing. He's not an idiot. So he responds, Should a man such as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? His call was to lead. He needs to remain strong. What kind of leader would he be, one, if he fled the scene at just any threat? What example would he be to his people who he's trying to unite together? If he's not willing to trust God at the sight of trouble, why would the people? That's his first. Should a man such as I, should a man, a leader, run away? And then the second half, 
though he was a leader, he also knew he wasn't a priest. So what business, why should a man such as I go into the temple and live? What business would, would I have going into the inner parts of the temple? This isn't sounding right. If we remember when King Uzziah entered the same place, he was struck with leprosy. He might as well have been struck dead because you get leprosy, you are then outside the camp. You are outside the kingdom. You are an outcast. Nehemiah knew the laws of the Lord. He knew the word of God. And he knew that the, this, what, what he was being fed in this prophecy just wasn't right. There was some deception going on. And that's what he says. He says, And I understood and I saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Samballot had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. In order to combat deception, we need to know the truths of the Bible. When we hear those things that are contrary being taught, we can't align ourselves with it. We need to know what the Scripture says. And when we hear those things that we know, that's not jiving. That's not jiving with what the Word of God says. We don't receive it. We reject that. We need to. Nehemiah could spot the deception because he was a man of God. He spent time in prayer. He knew the word of God. He knew the laws of God. And he knew that he, not, he couldn't go into the house of God within the temple. Sometimes deception is, is easy to spot. Sometimes it's not easy to spot. So if you're ever in a, a situation and you're just not quite sure about something someone said, something someone wrote... You know what? That's, what? that's what pastors, us pastors are here for. We, we are the shepherds. We oversee the flock. We want to help the sheep not get eaten by wolves. Um, so don't hesitate to ask questions. We are available. Just a, a little aside because we, we, we want to see people not deceived. We want to see people in the truth, in the word of God. Because the truth of the, truth, the, the truth of the Bible is just too precious to be counterfeited like that. Filter the things you hear and taught. Filter them through the infallible Word of God. Know the Word of God. Have a relationship with God. That's how Nehemiah prevented not only him, himself some harm um, from entering the temple, but he also prevented his reputation from being dragged through the mud. He didn't allow himself to be taken advantage of by another ploy of opposition. He didn't allow them to drag him away from the work that God had called him to do. He stayed focused on the mission at hand. So then Nehemiah prays again. He says, Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. That's 6.14. See, Nehemiah trusts in the goodness and the justice of God. We're not going to hang out here very long, but just take notice. He doesn't pray for their destruction. There's so many things that he could have probably prayed. But all he says, he says, God, remember them according to the things that they did. Remember Noadiah and the rest of the people who wanted to make me afraid. He's relying on the justice of God. He's allowing, he's letting God, he's recognizing, God, you're in control. You've got this. I'm, remember what they're doing. And you be the just God. 
He trusts that God will deal with it justly and accordingly to his goodness and perfect will. That's faith. He's putting his faith and trust in God. Moving, moving forward, heading towards the last part here. By this point, Sam Ballot and Tobiah kind of look like uh, Harry and Marv from Home Alone. Don't they? They totally do. You know, as Harry and Marv keep trying to ha- uh, get into the McAllister family's house on their vacation, uh, little Kevin McAllister, I guess Nehemiah in this case, um, you know, they just doesn't let it happen. They try coming through the doorknob and their hand gets burned. Uh, they get electrocuted, paint cans, smack them in the face, all kinds of different things. These guys have died like 25 times in this movie, but um, their attempts to, to, to get in and to rob the house are constantly thwarted, and these guys, Sam Ballot, Tobiah, and Geshem, their attempts are constantly thwarted in a very different way um, by the, the hand of God. Um, but that's, that's what it, it reminded me of. I figured, you know, that puts it into like a little bit of a perspective. Maybe nonsensical, but still relatable. So as we wrap up with these guys, Sam Ballot, Tobiah, Geshem, there's a very interesting piece about Tobiah that Nehemiah mentions at the end here. And so we're going to skip down to, uh, we're going to skip past 15 and 16 for now, and then we'll come back to it. I want to go to the very end, uh, verses 17. It says, moreover, in those days, the nobles, do I have it? Yeah. The nobles of Judah sent many leaders to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son Jehoianan had taken the daughter of Meshulam. Sometimes you just got to hang your head and be like, I don't know. I don't know how to say that. Anyway, he had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. This, what this little blurb here is, is telling us that is Tobiah, this Ammonite who has been causing so much trouble, is actually one of those people, if you remember back to Ezra 9 and 10, we dealt with the intermarriage issue. He's one of those people who married into the nation of Israel. And what's crazy, we thought that problem was resolved. Evidently, it's not, and it's rearing its ugly head again. And we'll actually even see that dealt with in Nehemiah 13, spoiler alert, um, as it comes up once again. So as a a result of, of Tobiah marrying the daughter of someone from Israel, he's not just this outsider trying to cause trouble. He's someone who can, who has, who has, infiltrated the people and his influence within Judah. He is a wolf who has gotten into the sheep pen. And so Nehemiah just in- includes this to say, this is, this is what happens. This is what happens when uh, people who can't be trusted are allowed in to the family of God. And he says also that to buy uh, also they, the people of Judah, spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Nehemiah sent letters to make me afraid. What we see is Tobiah and Nehemiah are appearingly never going to see eye to eye. It's like he's just saying, you know what, the letters keep flying. The people are caught in the middle. Some people love him. They're telling me. We're going back and forth. Uh, Tobiah just wants me to be afraid. 
And that's sadly how this, what we see this relationship is. It would be awesome to like have like chapter, another chapter where it's like, and Tobiah repented of his sins and we lived happily ever after in community. Um, it doesn't happen and also we know that community doesn't lead to happily ever after. But one thing we see in Nehemiah, again, so many things that we see in Nehemiah, is that he's a discerning guy. Throughout this narrative, his ability to just perceive and, and see false motive and detect when, when he's being played is uncanny. Good leaders need to be able to discern the good eggs from the bad eggs before the bad eggs get cracked into the omelet, so to say. The bad eggs keep trying to bring this project to a halt, but Nehemiah, through the empowerment of God, doesn't allow that to happen. So as a result of these discerning capabilities and knowing, knowing who his opposition is, knowing Tobias, seeing through it, he works past it, and we see that the wall comes to completion. So let's head back to verse 15, where finally we see done. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard of it, the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly into their own esteem, for they had perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Despite the efforts of the opposition, the wall is finished. And not like finished like you'd expect the wall to be finished over a long period of time. It says the wall was finished in 52 days. That's incredible. That is absolutely incredible. And everyone around who saw it knew it was incredible. Look what they say in verse 16. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. Why? For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. They begin to grasp the reality that God was truly present and active in the nation of Israel. The nations around are seeing, seeing God at work, and it's a serious wake-up call. They see the wall. They see this great work that had been done, and now they are feeling the weight of a glorious God. The reaction of the people reminds me of uh, the call of Matthew five fourteen to 16 where he says, You are a light of the world. The city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's why Israel was set apart in the first place. So that they would display God's glory to the nations. That they, people would look at them and they would see these guys are different. Why? Because of the God they serve, the God they worship. And so when this wall comes to completion, we see that. We see the light that they're supposed to be. It, it, what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 5 is that we're supposed to shine that light too. Our good works, the, 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 the things that get done, aren't to bring us glory, but to bring glory to God. The nations don't look at Nehemiah and are afraid. They see that God's hand was in it and they're afraid. Oh, have things have changed in this book. In chapter 1, verse 3, it said... Uh, that the remnant was there who had survived exile. They were in great trouble and shame. 
They were in shame in chapter 1. When, when Nehemiah set out to rebuild the walls, it was because he wanted to, to take him from this place of, of shame and being uh, just mocked. He wanted to take a place that was broken and in shambles, that anyone could come in, do what they want. There was no protection. There was no security. They were weak. That's what he came to do. And the walls are rebuilt. And now the nations see the glory of God and they were rightfully afraid because it had been restored. They see it. They recognize the God behind it. Which reminds me of another text. Romans 5, 6-11. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We, like the walls of Jerusalem, were broken, were weak. We were full of guilt and shame. But in that weakness, while we were still broken, while we were still sinners, Christ laid down his life for us. So that we wouldn't remain weak and broken and busted down, but we would be made whole, reconciled, that we would be strong in his power. In the walls of of his love, we are secure. Going down another text in Romans. Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's security. That's assurance. That is uh, something we can rest in. Nehemiah didn't make it through attack after attack after attack after attack on his own through the persecution, through the the opposition, through the trial, the draining, ongoing strife that Sambal, Tobiah, and Geshem brought to him, he knew that God was with him. He knew that God was right there, strengthening his hands, keeping him to the task. As we walk through this life, there will be opposition, physical, spiritual, both. And as we walk, we can be confident that we don't walk alone. We can be confident that in in Christ, we know he will get us through it. We have the leading, powering, and comfort of the Holy Spirit. Our broken lives are made whole in him and are held in his hands. Are you here this morning and don't know the love of Christ I'm talking about? Are you feeling beaten up, defeated? Are you feeling that the opposition is won? Look to Jesus. Put your faith and your trust in him this morning. Confess, repent of your sin, turn. Put your trust in him. You don't have to remain 
feeling beaten up and broken down. Know him. If you're here and you, and you do need Christ, but you're still feeling the same thing, remind yourself of the gospel that, that brought you out of darkness into light. Look back on the faithfulness of God and the grace he's shown to you and know for certain that his steadfast love endures forever. In Christ, he's not going to let you go. Stay focused. Don't let the opposition distract you from the mission of God. Don't let the opposition distort who you are. You are created in the image of God. You are precious to him. You are a child bought with the precious blood of Jesus. So don't let the opposition deceive you into believing anything contrary to that. You are held tightly in his grasp and he loves you. And then take joy in knowing that God is with you forever and he is with you until that final day when the work, our work, is done. Let's pray. Lord, you are good. And though we will inevitably face different trials, different seasons of life, hard times, trying times, we know you are in control. You are sovereign over it. We know that you alone I pray that we would know that you alone are what make us whole. Only you can repair what's been broken through your power. I pray that we would lean on you, that we would focus on you, that we would be able to look to you when things come to steal our attention. We would be grounded in your word. Work in us. Transform our hearts. Make us more like you, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.